1: Tonight, however, in collaboration with Critical Resistance LA, we are celebrating The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. He'll be joined by Mohammed Shek uh, for a discussion afterwards. Alex Vitale is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He has spent the last 25 years writing about policing and consults both police departments and human rights organizations internationally. He also serves on the New York State Advisory Committee of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Professor Vitali is also a frequent essayist whose writings have appeared in the New York Daily News, New York Times, The Nation, Gotham Gazette, and The New Inquiry. Mohammed Shek is the media and Communications Director of Critical Resistance, a national grassroots organization working to abolish the prison industrial complex. He has worked on various anti-policing, anti-imprisonment, and anti-surveillance efforts. We're delighted to have them both here tonight to read and discuss the end of policing. Now, to tell us more about Critical Resistance and the work they do, please help me welcome Mohammed Shek.
0: Celebrating the end of policing. I like that. So, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, My name is Mohammed with Critical Resistance. And as was mentioned, we're a national grassroots organization that's working to uh, build a movement to abolish the prison industrial complex. And just to, yeah, give it up. And... All right. The people have spoken. I will stand. Um, so, Critical resistance. Um, we organize through our chapters. We have four chapters. One here in Los Angeles, which is hosting this event. Uh, one in Oakland, one in New York City, and one in Portland. And all of our chapters have different projects and campaigns, different fights against different elements of the prison industrial complex. So, for... Our chapter here in Los Angeles, we have a uh, effort called Reimagine 109, which is working to divert funding that's going to the Sheriff's Department, and we actually want to divert that into uh, community-based alternatives and re-entry programs for people to be able to be freed from jail and come back into their communities. And one of our members is here with us. Uh, Jane, if you want to stand up and just wave Um, jane has a sign-in sheet um, that she'll be passing around and we also have some flyers um, up there in the front Um, three different flyers that you all can take they uh, really detail resources anti-policing resources anti-imprisonment resources Um, actually one thing that i will mention that is uh, maybe Alex, I don't know if you if you've heard, but we did an event with Alex in Oakland and earlier this year. And one of the things that we were talking about was this program called Urban Shield. And before Alex uh, did the uh, before the um, uh, the event, uh, we you know had some conversations about you know this. It's a highly militarized policing program uh, that brought together law enforcement from all over the country all over the world to train in highly militarized tactics to quote-unquote fight terrorism right we see how that plays out in greater repression greater policing and greater harm to our communities and since alex uh, did the event we actually won that campaign we put an end to urban shield and that was a five-year fight So there's a five-year fight against the largest SWAT training in the world, and we put it to an end. So this is the kind of organizing that critical resistance does here in LA. We are also fighting the construction of two jails that they want to build um, and are really amplifying the need for alternatives to imprisonment and alternatives to this really violent system. So I just want to say why we're really excited about this event. Uh, Alex's work has been extremely influential and we have been you know, really honored to be able to draw on Alex's work in our fight, in our struggle, because it really provides what I would say is really tedious work of doing the research, uh, but that also is really important and crucial for us to use as ammunition as we seek to abolish the system of policing and for, <clears throat> for those of us invested in abolition, invested in the future without law enforcement, without systems of control, uh, we are really uh, inspired by the way that Alex's uh, book highlights not only the, the fact that policing doesn't work, that it is fundamentally the problem of policing is the problem itself, it's not the reforms, right? And, but that importantly, you draw on alternatives. So I really want to uplift that, because that is you know, important to abolition, that as much as we want to tear these systems down and abolish them, it's also about building up what we want to see, right? Um, so I'm just going to give a brief layout of kind of how this event will go, just so you all are in the know. Um, and then we're gonna get started. So, I'm gonna pass it off to Alex. Uh, He's gonna do a bit of a talk, talk about the book, talk about his work, uh, read some excerpts. Then I'm gonna ask Alex some questions that we've got, have a little discussion, and then we're gonna open it up to you all to uh, ask some questions. And after that, there's going to be a book signing where you'll be able to buy a book and get it signed and then we'll just kind of mingle sound good awesome so with that i'm going to pass it off to you okay
2: that's already a lot to digest um, i'll stand okay it is fantastic fantastic to be here uh, I just just flew in this afternoon, and uh, I have little kids at home, so I'm kind of a go-to-bed-early guy, so bear with me as I adjust to the time a little bit. Uh, and I'm always excited to be working with Critical Resistance in any capacity, because uh, this book exists because of the work that's going on on the ground. As much as uh, those folks have been able to use my book to advance their work, that's incredibly gratifying. But this book would not have been possible 10 or 15 years ago because on the one hand we didn't have a whole raft of really fantastic academic research that has really drilled down into some of the fundamental problems with policing and also thought about what the alternatives could be, but also we didn't have all these on the ground struggles that were producing the alternatives in concrete ways that could be evaluated, could be explicated in important ways. So uh, this book is in many ways a, a synthesis of a kind of movement that's underway and it is a very exciting time to be thinking about these issues and to try to push the conversation beyond calling for body cameras and community policing and uh, diversity training. So, let me talk a little bit about the the book. Maybe I'll read a short little section and then we'll we'll have a little bit more of a conversation. So, uh, I got a a call from a reporter not long ago, as as, uh, I do fairly often, in New York. Um, The New York City Council uh, has been holding some hearings about what to do about uh, policing and mental health crises. This was uh, in the wake of the Deborah Danner killing, a middle-aged woman living in public housing, African-American, well known to the police, to the community as someone who had a mental health problem. Uh, One of her neighbors felt that she was having a crisis. There was a lot of noise coming from her apartment. She wasn't responsive, so she called 911 for help. But of course, what help arrives in a situation like that? Armed police. They forced entry into her apartment. They forced entry into her bedroom. She picked up a pair of scissors. She did not want to go with them. Now, they made some effort to calm things down. They got her to put the scissors down. She thought, okay, now you're gonna leave. And they're like, no, you have to come with us. And she picked up a baseball bat, and they shot her to death. This is not uh, uh, an unusual occurrence. We know that at least a quarter of all police killings in the United States are of someone having a mental health crisis and that this has become a huge part of what police do. In New York City, the NYPD goes on a quarter of a million of these calls every year. So the reporter, uh, well, so the city council in New York, a very progressive, liberal city council, responded to this killing and several others by saying well, we need to take a look at what the NYPD is doing in hopes of preventing this seems reasonable. So the reporter called me to talk about, well, what kind of training should they be doing? Should they be doing CIT training, the Memphis model? Uh, and I start to talk about these different models and their strengths and weaknesses and I, I stopped myself. And I said, you know, ultimately I'm not really interested in fine-tuning the police response to these calls. I'm interested in ending it. Because the solution to these incidents is not new and innovative police training. We know, for instance, that the vast majority of this training is not effective. There was just a shooting in in Harris County, which includes Houston, Texas, uh, where an African American male, unarmed, in the middle of the street, with his pants down around his ankle, starts walking towards a police officer who gets out of his car and shoots him dead. He had de-escalation training, he had crisis intervention training, it didn't matter. We know that most of these trainings only show minute positive results when there is a mental health infrastructure that they can utilize to try to divert people. So that really the solution is not that the policing got better, but that some kind of mental health infrastructure has been put in place. And ultimately, that's the solution to this, is we've got to build the kind of mental health infrastructure that prevents things from becoming a crisis in the first place, and that then when crises do emerge, we have people to send other than armed police who are trained, who are experienced in dealing with people having a crisis who may be volatile and even violent. We know how to do this. So why why did the progressive New York City City Council respond in this way? Well, they are committed to a kind of liberal outlook about policing that says that the problems of policing are ones of implementation. They believe that the rule of law when applied in a professional and unbiased manner is automatically to the benefit of everyone. And that what we need for police reform is to merely make the police more professional and less biased and then everything will be just fine. This is a kind of procedural justice idea that says that when the police take the time to explain what they're doing, listen to what people have to say, people feel better about The outcome and the legitimacy of the police is enhanced and therefore the rule of law is enhanced and the cycle continues. Now the problem with this mindset is that a perfectly lawful professionally executed, unbiased, low-level drug arrest serves no damn good purpose. It is fundamentally unjust and no amount of training or professionalization is going to change that. And the reason is, is that this whole idea that the law serves everyone equally is completely misguided and misunderstands the nature, nature of our legal systems. There's a famous uh, 19th century saying that the law and its majesty forbids both the rich and the poor from sleeping under bridges, stealing bread, and begging in the streets. But of course the rich don't need to do these things. And there's a reason why problems of violence and crime and disorder are heavily concentrated in the places that they're concentrated. You know the police always say, well we just go where the crime is, we just go where the complaints are. Now of course that's never really entirely true but there is some truth to that. But there's a reason for that that liberals don't want to acknowledge They want to just imagine that everyone starts from a level position and that the laws just apply neutrally and the police just enforce the law. But our neighborhoods look the way they do because of long legacies of exploitation and racial domination that have produced highly entrenched racialized poverty that guess what? Is associated with violence and black market activity and other problems. And then what those communities get is heavy-handed policing and incarceration as the government intervention to deal with their problems. Because their problems are defined as problems of law violation. While other communities get recreation programs and drug treatment and diversion and other kinds of things. So we've created a system with bipartisan support that has increasingly said the, pro- the solution to every problem in poor communities is more policing, more incarceration, more punitiveness. And why is that? Well, because they're deeply embedded in this neoliberal mindset that the, way- the only hope for places is to subsidize the very richest people take off all the fetters of regulation and social obligation and tax obligations in hopes that their inherent genius that had made them wealthy in the first place will somehow miraculously produce wealth for everyone else. This kind of trickle-down economics nonsense. That continues to dominate the rhetoric of both parties in really important ways at both the national and the local level. And once they buy into that system, it's really important that they define crime, disorder, violence, as being the result of individual or group moral failure. Because to do otherwise would be to acknowledge that markets and the state have some role to play in producing these circumstances. I mean we continue to have a system of educational funding That relies on local property tax bases. That alone may be the biggest driver of racialized inequality in our country and there's not a single politician in the country who's even talking about that. It's not on the radar. So this is the this is the challenge that we have is that a series of kind of procedural professionalization-oriented police reforms do nothing to deal with the fundamental inequalities that our communities face and the kind of slavish, bipartisan consensus that the solution is always more punitiveness. So let me just uh, give you a little feel for a section of the book here. so rather well let me I tell you what, i'll just say one other thing first so one of my favorite uh, police reforms to attack is implicit bias training very popular here around the world increasingly i was in the uk it's all the rage in the uk they're all doing implicit bias training so implicit bias training is based on this social psychological research that's done in laboratory settings where they put a monitor in front of someone and they give them little buttons to push and they show them different images. And in the aggregate, in a big group, they find that there's a slight preference for lighter skinned faces over darker skinned faces as measured in milliseconds in this button pushing. Now the problem is that they can't actually reproduce this effect at the individual level. It only shows up in large aggregations of people. But if you give the test over and over again to the same person, the results don't reproduce themselves. But there's a bigger problem, which is they've never been able to show any linkage between people's score in this laboratory test and their actual behavior. In a laboratory setting, in a real world setting, nothing. They have absolutely no evidence that the training changes the behavior of the police in any way. So why has it become this multi-million dollar business? Because it's the perfect liberal solution, which is that it says, "Oh, uh, you're concerned about race and policing. Well, we have a solution, and the beauty of it is, is that no one's to blame." It's all an accident. It's all unconscious. So it's something that no one intended to do. right? It assumes that the problems of race and policing are completely accidental and unintentional. No one bears any responsibility for it. Just take this course and then if next time if you could just keep it in mind before you shoot another unarmed black person, everything would be much better. Thank you. The problems of race and policing aren't really about individual officer bias. That's not to say that there isn't individual officer bias. When we look for racism in policing, we sure find it. The emails, the radio chatter, the chat rooms, the other communications on the terminals, you know, it's it's out there, but the problems were more systematic, right? They have to do with this fundamental inequality in the way that we have constructed communities along racial lines in the United States. So, let me just if we can't turn to these police reforms, what can we do? More than anything, what we really need is to rethink the role of police in society. The origins and function of the police are intimately tied to the management of inequalities of race and class. The suppression of workers and the tight surveillance and micromanagement of black and brown lives have always been at the center of policing. Any police reform strategy that does not address this reality is doomed to fail. We must stop looking to procedural reforms and critically evaluate the substantive outcomes of policing. We must constantly reevaluate what the police are asked to do and what impact policing has on the lives of the police. A kindler, gentler, and more diverse war on the poor is still a war on the poor. And As long as the police are tasked with waging simultaneous wars on drugs, crime, disorder, gangs, terrorism, we will have aggressive and invasive policing that disproportionately criminalizes the young, poor, male, and non-white. We need to push back on this dramatic expansion of police power and its role in the in mass incarceration in the mass incarceration at the heart of the new Jim Crow. What we are witnessing is a political crisis at all levels and in both parties. Our political leaders have embraced a neoconservative politics that sees all social problems as police problems. They have given up on using government to improve racial and economic inequality and seem hell-bent on worsening these inequalities and using the police to manage the consequences. For decades, they have pitted police against the public while also telling them to be friendlier and improve community relations. They can't do both. A growing number of police leaders are speaking out about the failures of this approach. In the wake of the tragic deaths of the five police officers in Dallas, Chief David Brown said, quote, we're asking the cops to do too much in this country. We are. Every societal failure, we put it off on the cops to solve. Not enough mental health funding, let the cops handle it. Here in Dallas, we got a loose dog problem. Let's have the cops chase loose dogs. Schools fail, let's give it to the cops. Too much to ask. Policing was never meant to solve all those problems." We are told that the police are the bringers of justice. They are here to help maintain social order so that no one should be subjected to abuse. The neutral enforcement of the law sets us all free. This understanding of policing, however, is largely mythical. American police function, despite whatever good intentions they have, as a tool for managing deeply entrenched inequalities in a way that systematically produces injustices for the poor, socially marginal, and non white. Part of the problem is that our politicians, media, and criminal justice institutions too often equate justice with revenge. Popular culture is suffused with revenge fanaties, fantasies in which the aggrieved bring horrible retribution down on those who have hurt them. Often, this involves a fantasy of those who have been placed on the margins taking aim at the powerful. It's a fantasy of empowerment through violence. Police and prisons have come to be our preferred tools for inflicting punishment. Our our entire criminal justice system has become a gigantic revenge factory. Three strikes laws, sex offender registries, the death penalty, and abolishing parole are about retribution, not safety. Whole segments of our society have been deemed always already guilty. This is not justice, it's oppression. Real justice would look to restore people and communities, to rebuild trust and social cohesion, to offer people a way forward, to reduce the social forces that drive crime, and to treat both victims and perpetrators as full human beings. Our police and larger criminal justice system not only fail at this, but rarely see it as even related to their mission. say a little thing about school policing. Got time? How are we doing? Good. School policing. So uh, Chief Brown mentioned the schools don't work, they give it to the cops. Well that's exactly what's happened. In the 1990s a whole set of forces came together to create the modern system of school policing. Before then there wasn't much in the way of school policing. So what happened? Well John DeUlio, the extremely conservative, politically motivated criminologist wrote this paper about the rise of the youthful super predator. He said we were on the, the precipice of a wave of sociopathic youth violence, that we were going to be besieged by young people who would sooner kill you as look at you, that they were carrying guns in their lunch boxes and that they were going to bring mayhem to our cities. Of course, every year after he made that prediction straight through to today, youth violence has fallen. Completely made it up. But it became a huge media sensation. Why? Because it solved a set of political problems. It fed into this whole politics of austerity that were producing problems in schools, not of the violence kind, but of the school failure kind. Because the other thing that's going on during this period is the defunding of public schools, replacing them with charter schools, zero tolerance discipline policies, high-stakes testing. They cut out all the extracurriculars, they cut out all the enrichment, they made the classes boring rote learning, and guess what, kids? Got bored. They acted out. So they bring in zero tolerance discipline regimes. They bring in school policing to manage this. The third factor was Columbine. Also happens in the nineties. Well, let me oh let me say about the the uh, the charter schools and these kinds of things. When we create a system. Where schools are rewarded for higher test scores, we create an incentive for the schools to drive out low performing students. And that's exactly what's happening. And it seems to be worse at some of the charter schools in New York, the Success Academy. Someone leaked the fact that they had a got to go list of students who were dragging down the test scores and so they constantly violated them on disciplinary things, dragged their parents in, got the school police involved, got them arrested until they dropped out. And if they dropped out because of disciplinary issues it doesn't count as an educational failure. Their test scores go up, their salaries go up, their executive salaries go up, the model is proven successful. So Columbine horrible tragedy. But then and now, those kinds of mass school shootings remain statistically incredibly rare. And then and now, schools are the safest place that young people spend time. Safer than their homes, safer than communities. But the other thing is that there were armed police at Columbine that day. There were armed police at Parkland earlier this year. It made no difference. And the idea that now we're going to arm teachers is just further insanity. And I will say one of the interesting things has been the role that actual uh, military veterans have played in calling bullshit on all of this. Because they know what it's like to be in a firefight. And they're like, even trained soldiers don't perform well in firefights. We know that police officers don't perform well in firefights. They, uh, what the NYPD released some statistics recently that showed that only like one in six bullets hit their targets when officers are in these volatile shooting situations. So now we're gonna give them the guns to the teachers. Just furthering the mindset, it's it's not about effectiveness, it's not about safety, it's about ideology. Right, it's about producing an ideology that says that the role of the state is to be reduced to punitiveness and it's going to pull the rug out from everything else. Schools don't have to look that way. One of the things we know is that kids who go to schools with metal detectors and armed police actually feel less safe. Crime does not go down. There's no evidence behind it. Whenever we suggest an alternative to policing, the first thing they say is, where's the proof it works? But we never get to demand that there's proof for what they're doing, that it works, because it doesn't work. We know that restorative justice programs, when properly implemented and well-resourced, are very successful. But it has to be the whole institution. It can't be a little add-on where we call the police when something serious happens, but if it's just a little uh, vandalism of a desk, well then we handle that with restorative justice. No, it's about a whole mindset that takes the primarily punitive outlook of current disciplinary systems out of the picture, that treats young people from top to bottom with dignity and as full members of the school community that have a role to play in producing successful educational outcomes but very few schools do this but those that do have very positive results. We need community schools. This is the idea that schools could actually be a resource hub not just for students but for their families, for the larger community. They could be hubs of mental health services, employment preparation, ESL classes. This is happening in places like Salt Lake City, in parts of New York City. The results on this stuff are very positive. But ultimately if we want education to improve, if we want these discipline problems to to, to go away or to be reduced, we've got to invest in education instead of pulling the rug out from under. We've got to do something about the unequal way that schools are funded, about the deeply segregated residential patterns that contribute to that inequality, So we need to approach it at all these levels. But the idea of the reformers about school police is, well, they just need better training. Or they need to be friendlier. Or actually in New York, the head of the school resource officer said, well, the problem is the kids aren't nice to us. That's the problem with school policing. And so our officers get upset and get you know, testy with them, you know, it's their fault. Then we hear, oh well we need them to be mentors to our young people. You know, somehow because they're police they have the best advice about how to make it through your childhood. We don't need school police to be better trained. We don't need them to be friendlier. We do, certainly don't want them to be mentors to our children. We need no school police. That is the solution to that problem. But as was said before, it's not just about tearing it down, it's also about building it up. And these things have to be, be done together. So, you know, here in LA, the Youth Justice Coalition has been doing great work along with the, the Million Dollar Hoods group uh at UCLA, I think it is. So or is it US? I think it's UCLA, right. They're they're showing the billions of dollars that LA is spending on jails and policing that don't produce safety, don't produce better health outcomes and certainly don't produce justice. And if we could just redirect I think the Youth Justice Coalition is like, if we could just redirect of the 5% of the 5.5 billion dollars that, that LA County and City are spending on jails and police, we could fund all the summer youth jobs we need, we could have community-based anti-violence initiatives, we could have after-school programs, we could have more counselors in schools, just off that 5%. So whenever we hear, well there's no money to produce public safety, but somehow there's always money for more police. There's always money for a new jail. There's always money for a new police training center. We have to understand this as a fundamental kind of ideological battle about the direction of our cities, of our local communities, and the political direction of the country. And I think, if anything, the Trump administration has created more political space to kind of have some of these conversations so that uh, instead of you know defending the head of the DEA because he stood up to Trump, people are starting to say, why do we even need the DEA? The, the DEA is a fundamentally unjust institution. Same thing could be said for Comey and the FBI. This lionizing of him is is a horrible idea, and what we need is to advance the analysis so that we fundamentally question the mission that the FBI has been given and the many missions they've been given. So I'll stop there and look forward to some conversation. Thank you.
0: Another round of applause for Alex Natali. Uh, definitely a lot to, to process, a lot to hash out there. Um, but I actually want to I want to just begin by asking a question that's related to the thing that you ended on, uh, which is talking about the current political moment, the, the Trump administration. We have a very fascistic. If not straight up fascist uh, federal government, um, and but in many ways yes, you know as uh, as someone who is engaged in organizing and just looking also at the um, the kind of way that people are responding to the political landscape, I do think that there has been some form of an opening to kind of push things a little further. Um, and to really take advantage. And I guess the thing to ask is given that moment, what element of policing should our movement focus on? Like what would be really strategic for us to hit right now so that if we were to achieve a particular goal, to tear out a cog, say, um, in the system, would make it much easier for us to continue fighting in the future?
2: So, I, you know, in a lot of ways that's, that's a local question. So I, I, don't, I, I wanted to start with a disclaimer that local struggles have to assess their environment, because we do have to understand local uh, policing is primarily a local phenomena. We've got close to 18,000 individual police departments in the United States. And one of the good things about that is that Trump actually has very little influence over them, just as Obama had very little influence over them. Uh, so that we can make pretty big changes at the local level. We don't have to like win the whole national battle to start implementing some of these things. So I uh, I think the things that seem to be resonating the most as I travel around the country and look at what people are doing is uh, first the school policing issue. There are a lot of campaigns underway to get police out of their schools and I think uh, the the anti uh, school shooting movement has approached this in a pretty good way. You know there was a, f- a concern that a lot of us had that they you know, would include in their agenda you know beefing up school security, more school police, more metal detectors and there were little hints of that at the beginning but they actually very quickly shied away from that, have worked to make common cause with kids uh, in schools where the violence is more individual level and, and more prevalent and have pointed out that police shootings are also part of the gun violence problem. So that's encouraging and I think there's, there's a, I, I did a radio show in Ann Arbor not long ago, there's a great group there, Freedom Inc., they found that uh, the school police who mistreat them in their schools are funded out of the education budget. Tens of millions of dollars that could be spent in classrooms is going to fund the police. So they're like, wait a second, you know? We could, we want that money back. We need counselors. We need better instructional staff. We don't need school police to abuse us. So that I think there's a lot of room for campaigns like that. I think the uh, everyone sees the, pardon the expression, but the insanity of the way we handle the mental health situation in this country. Uh, The the mass shootings has sort of put it on the agenda some, but mostly the constant barrage of police killings, of people having a mental health crisis. Whether or not they're armed, whether or not it's legally justified, uh, it's still wrong, and it's still totally preventable. So I think there's a lot of room there to talk about what we can do to create 24-hour crisis response and start building a mental health infrastructure. Uh, we've put a plan together in New York, the, the mayor's wife, Charlene McRae, has put together a plan. It's, it's got a lot of weaknesses to it, but it at least signals that the solution to the problem is not just police training, it's actually starting to try to build some sort of mental health infrastructure. And I also think, directly related to, to the thing about Trump, is that uh, is the discussion about border policing. I think the legitimacy of a militarized border is now really being called into question and I think there's a space now to have a conversation about no borders, no walls, no border police and what that would look like and so
0: that's also very encouraging. <clears throat> so, one of the things that you uh, really touched on, and that you just mentioned, is around uh, you know, mental health response. Well, our, our Portland chapter is actually, that's exactly their campaign, is to decouple uh, policing from being responders at all to situations of people experiencing mental health crises. And a big part of the way that we're going about that is to target the budget. Uh, not surprising, um, but given that you know we can you know show these instances, say, so it's, it is very much ideological. There's a lot of ideological support, but you also mentioned the long history that policing is steeped in in this country, that is based on the policing of uh, black and brown people, of immigrants, of workers, right, and. What just? What do you think is the main barrier to getting through on the changes that need to happen? So, like I mentioned, I mentioned mental health uh, as a specific example, because for us, it might be like, of course. Why would you send in armed people to respond to a situation that intimately needs de-escalation and not escalation? Right? What What is the... The main, the, the critical barrier that is is keeping us from an end of policing world. Okay,
2: right to the core of the matter here. Uh, so we we're we're fighting two ideological battles. One is the battle against the kind of thin blue line mindset that Trump embodies, the Blue Lives Matter kind of thing, and this is the mindset that says that. You know the solution to all problems is more aggressive, more invasive policing. Take the gloves off. Don't be nice. Right. This is the kind of stuff we've we've heard before. Uh, so that we we have to directly counter this idea, which we hear from the police unions and and uh, and from a lot of politicians that uh, that says that if we impede the police in any way, it will bring you know chaos and and mayhem to our streets because of course the only way to produce safety is through heavy-handed policing so we gotta we gotta wage that battle and and heather mcdonald at the manhattan institute and her bore, book war on cops is i think a, a the, an embodiment of that that people can look at to see what we're up against uh, ideologically but then we still got this battle to fight with the liberals they're the ones who call for body cameras and uh, implicit bias training and community policing you know community policing is on the one hand it's just PR and on the other hand it's a way of reinforcing the idea that every community problem is something that should be brought to the police for the police to solve certainly doesn't produce more just outcomes in policing There's no evidence to support that. There's a new monograph in production uh, from NYU Press about community policing initiatives here in Los Angeles where they spent years going to these meetings and it's just horrible, right? It's the police produce the community by choosing who get to be the community leaders. They completely frame the conversation and then everything has to be couched in terms of what can the police do which just cuts out everything else. So we've got to robustly challenge that narrative. And I think the way to do it is to stay focused on the positive alternatives. Why can't we have drug treatment on demand anywhere in this country? we got policing on demand every, everywhere in this country and drug treatment on demand nowhere. So uh, the, the Ithaca plan in Ithaca, New York is a uh, comprehensive response to the drug problem there developed in collaboration with the city advocates communities they held town halls and focus groups and at the end of this comprehensive process guess what there's almost nothing about policing in there drug treatment on demand crisis intervention services needle exchange safe injection facilities and targeted community investments so, those are the kinds of campaigns we need to wage because it cuts through some of the ideology, it's concrete, and it outflanks them by saying, no, this is how we produce safety, this is how we improve health outcomes, et cetera.
0: And uh, you mentioned uh, one of the things that we really appreciate uh, is you being able to point to, you know. We oppose the liberal reforms as, you know, these aren't going to solve a problem, right? Body cameras, and trainings it's not going to, uh, community policing, it's not going to actually address uh, the, the fundamental violence of policing. But one thing that we really appreciate is being able to point to actually how those things expand the scope of policing, right? Um, Stop LAP, LAPD spying, one of uh, our close comrades that we work here in Los Angeles um, do a lot of work around predictive policing, and that's also one of these kind of reforms or ways that policing is is transforming. Um, Can you talk about how the liberal reforms are actually dangerous, not just that they're ineffective? Well, obviously, the community policing
2: example I just gave, but let's you know talk about predictive policing a little bit. So uh, there's a chapter in the book about gang suppression policing, and that's actually the the main work that I'm doing right now in New York is, is working, uh, we've built a large network that's pushing back on uh, gang databases, RICO conspiracy cases, and all of this is caught up in this discussion about precision policing, predictive policing, um, focus deterrence initiatives. So yes, there's this new technology that creates these algorithms that they can put different data sets into and spit out a list. And the lists are more or less accurate depending on what data you put in and what you think you're getting out. But ultimately, what do you do with the data results? What do you do when you have a list of names of people who are at risk for either committing gun violence or being victims of gun violence? Because that's what a lot of this does, it produces these hot lists. Well, what we do is all the same stupid shit we do before we had these lists, which is we harass them, we surveil them, we give them enhanced (laughs) sanctions, we deny them bail, we you know, send, give them longer sentences. So it hasn't really changed the fundamental nature of the policing. And there's a way in which you can say, yes, the, the problems of like youth violence are heavily concentrated in fairly identifiable areas. But we could develop totally different approaches for how to resolve those problems other than just putting them in jail forever. So I'm not against the idea of identifying the problems in sophisticated ways, or identifying the communities that have greatest needs. What I object to is that it's in the hands of the police and that the solutions that are put forward are entirely police-based. Why don't we use that software in the health department? To treat gun violence as a public health problem that we could respond to through trauma counseling and violence interrupters, community development programs, youth employment schemes, etc.
0: And I just have one more question. Um, being an abolitionist organization and uh, really knowing the the what we're up against, what would you say is, has been the most inspiring abolitionist victory when it comes to policing? I know it's kind of a- Yeah, well, we
2: don't, we don't don't have, we don't have a ton of victories, unfortunately. We have some great campaigns. Uh, I mean, obviously the Stop Urban Shield, that's a victory, and there are, there, are, there have been some cases where we've gotten restorative justice programs put in and, and instead of policing, but unfortunately, right now, a lot of what we see are these half measures of like, oh, now we're going to send a mental health worker with the police on the call, or we're going to send a social worker with the police to do homeless outreach, or we're going to create a drug court so that um you know we the the court decides who gets social services and who gets jail and it's all very punitive or we're going to have a law enforcement assisted diversion where the police decide who gets jail and who gets treatment out on the street so um and maybe you have some ideas about victories I I'm, I'm not thinking of at the moment but we we do have a lot more work to do on that front yeah i think we've We've created a, a structure of analysis and we've put some people in motion across the country who are calling for things, and, and I am you know, optimistic that we're going to have victories, but I don't see too many of them yet.
0: Yeah, I just to respond, I would yeah. say that the, the, the very fact that we have uh, across the country, I think you talked a lot about funding and the way that um, a lot of different campaigns have begun to really target the police budget funding. I know it's not like we, uh, a victory that we've achieved a material gain, but that really shows kind of an advancement where you know um, the the movement for Black Lives platform really identifies funding, right, police funding, because the reality of the matter is when you look at the largest cities in the U- U.S almost half of the city budgets go to police. And so to identify that as a target and to have that be shared, I think, has been a really good to see. Yeah. Um, let, let me just say, the, yeah. the, the, center, the Center for Popular Democracy has a
2: really good report that came out around the beginning of the year that looked at about 10 cities where these kinds of campaigns are underway, where they've done the budget analysis and they've identified the alternatives they would want things spent on. So, yeah, it's a national movement and we need to get behind it.
0: And I will say, you know, in Oakland we ended the use of police gang injunctions. That's true. In Los Angeles, here, uh, uh, Youth Justice Coalition and uh, other organizations that have been working also achieved a victory against gang injunctions in Los Angeles, which is. give it up for that. That was. big win. Yes. So yes. we chip away at the system. Yes. We, <laughs> I'm going to be, the, I'm gonna be the, yeah. the sunlight to your pessimism. <laughs> um, but we, you know, all just coming at this understanding that, you know, the system of policing, you know, you say it's not working. I would say it's not working for our communities, but it's working very well as it was intended to. Um, so working to chip away at it slowly but surely and the small victories, for us are huge, are important. And uh, I mentioned the last one around funding. Again, uh, we're working on Reimagine 109 to divert funding away from the Sheriff's budget. Um, If you'd like to get plugged in, if you'd like to support that work, we got information on how to do so. Um, But with that, I just wanted to give another round of applause and then I'm gonna open it up. So we will open it up uh, for question and answer. And I'm just gonna kind of take stack.
2: so people want people have questions. We've got about 15 minutes or so, yeah, I think, for this. No. Okay. Do you mind to repeat the question? I'll try, yeah. Yes.
0: Okay, I'll start.
2: Okay, we've got a ton of questions. Make them short, not big speeches, so we thank can you. get as many in as possible. And point. I'll try to be brief, too. So, uh, uh, sure. So, uh, 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 in a formal question, I think that one of the things that led to the militarization of police, which you didn't talk about too much, was the fact that in the 60s and 70s, there was a delegit- delegitimization of the police and a crack in that thin blue
0: line. They actually had to bring the Army into Detroit and the Army, US, not National Guard, the U.S. Army mm-hmm. in D.C. Uh, so we'll talk about that, the, the law enforcement assistance
2: administration, transfer of technology to the military. The other thing is around community-oriented policing, I think it's important to see that as an aspect of police militarization. When they try to sell it to the police department, they actually talk about it as the domestic equivalent of psycholo-
0: psychological operations in the military. That it's, a, it's about controlling the thinking of the population or the enemy. Yeah.
2: So so I think one of the themes that connects those is this idea of counterinsurgency. So there's a lot of discussion in the book about police militarization and also counterinsurgency and the role it plays. Uh, There's a whole chapter on political policing, uh, so-called what we call high policing in the police literature. So, but uh, yeah, policing has always had a heavily politically oriented focus and the development of SWAT teams was a direct outgrowth of that started here in LA with the targeting of the Black Panthers uh, so yeah a lot of that is discussed we should understand militarized policing though as going far beyond tanks and armored personnel carriers into a whole kind of warrior mindset of policing and again a war on crime, war on drugs, war on so that that Causes the dynamic between police and the public to shift in important ways. Not that it was great before, but it's just it's gotten worse, and it's contributed to some of the worst abuses.
0: Yeah. The uh, half back there. So, uh, this yeah. lady, I mean the uh, other day I read this article about uh, I think it's 2.5 million uh, union members in California, 1.8 million in New York. All the places uh, that are I guess more progressive or more leftist. I have to do like uh union membership so I'd like for you to speak a bit about uh policing relationship or abolishing the police relationship
2: around the union. Do do okay, so, so thinking about the relationship between policing and the union movement, and uh, I'm the I'm a vice president of my union. We, we represent twenty-six thousand uh professors and, and educational workers at the City University of New York, so it's a very uh, concrete concern for me. So in the political policing chapter, I point out that uh, there's a long history of local policing attacking the labor movement. Really, that's one of the origins of policing. I talk about uh, in an earlier chapter, a history chapter, that we should think about the origins of policing tied to three fundamental aspects of 19th century economic development, and those are colonialism, colonialism, slavery and the rise of industrialization, the management and really production of an industrial working class so that the policing of labor movements is not just about strike breaking it's also about the micro-regulation of the lives of working people that often often happens in community contexts the prohibition movement, the drug prohibition movement These have all been legal regimes for managing working class leisure activity in ways that benefit employers, etc. But of course there's also a lot of strike breaking. Red squads and these kinds of things have always taken the side of employers. And This is another example of how the neutral application of the law by its nature produces inequality because the law is about producing social order but that social order doesn't benefit workers and owners equally. And when we have a seemingly neutral law against disruptive protest activity, what that really does is empower the bosses at the expense of striking workers. Um,
0: So sort of building upon that, uh, the relationship between policing and capitalism, do you think it's possible to abolish the police until we also abolish private property? It seems like at least in Ferguson that yeah. a clear
2: task of policing a policing property so I don't uh, I don't directly require you know the the abolition of capitalism in part because the problems of policing don't just exist in capitalist societies they exist in state socialist societies and other societies so that um, I about regimes of exploitation and abuse and that policing always exists to manage the consequences of that or to enable those regimes of exploitation and abuse so like I said before slavery, colonialism, industrialization so we have to be careful about only thinking in terms of capitalism for one thing we want to be more nuanced because we we had capitalism up until the 1970s, but we had an incarceration rate that was very steady. But in the 1970s, it goes and through the 80s and 90s off the charts, right? 10 times, it's all capitalism. But something shifted, right? The new regime of accumulation, deindustrialization, the production of a precarious workforce, a large surplus labor, pool, meant that you got the rise of mass homelessness, bigger black markets, and then policing comes in to manage those with mass incarceration. So that, those are the ways that I talk about it in the book. I've been picking up on that last question, my sense of, especially in the Trump era now, where
0: just naked, straight up, we're going to do it because we turn a buck. That, that seems to be even behind that rise of incarceration in that period. Isn't that coinciding with privatization of penitentiaries?
2: So this is the question about privatization of penitentiaries and prison labor, and does that help drive this system? My argument, and I, I'm you know, I look to like Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work on this, is actually that's small potatoes. That's missing the big picture, right? That's just gravy for some people. It's about a broader system of accumulation, right? That that heavy-handed policing and mass incarceration make possible tax cuts for the rich, the hollowing out of the state, and all these much bigger issues. So yes, a few companies are making $100 million here or there, but we're talking about trillions of dollars in this bigger thing. So, yes, it's possible that private prisons create certain incentives, but Jonathan Pfaff actually makes an argument that says, actually, it's easier for states to close down a private prison than a unionized public prison and to have tighter contracts with them and demand better outcomes. So, I think it's a mistake to Focus on that aspect of the problem.
1: Um, you know, these intimate community settings. What would happen when that lady hold out a bat If the neighbor who knew the lady called an ambulance, just instead of going to the police, it wasn't if it's a health crisis that you're dealing with. Why don't you think level or even a PSA campaign to get? to where you're calling someone who might intervene, might have
2: a skillset. So could we solve the the policing of mental health crises by having people call for an ambulance instead? Uh, the problem is that the 911 dispatcher makes that decision. Now interestingly in the UK they have a different system. Now it's not perfect and and there's, the, there's it's getting worse unfortunately, but Uh, there's actually a different number to call. There's a National Health Service number that runs the ambulances and stuff and you can call them. And so actually most mental health response calls in the UK don't involve police. But if you say on the phone there's violence or something like that, then again the dispatcher will send it over to the police. Sometimes they send a mental health worker along with the police. They have mental health workers in the dispatch room because they have national health insurance they can have the records of the person in front of them and can talk with the officers on the way there you're dealing with someone who has a schizophrenia problem and last saw their physician blah 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 it's something that's unimaginable in the u.s right now
0: Yeah, one right here. Are here somewhere yeah yeah you actually sort of touched on my question but i was wondering if you could expand upon whether there are um, systems or frameworks of policing
2: and law enforcement maybe Uh, elsewhere in the world or even historically that we can kind of use as an exemplar or that's aspirational to us? So are there examples of really excellent ways of doing policing that we could emulate? So I wouldn't say that there's like some perfect police force out there but all through the book I do give examples of other ways of doing things. So for instance Portugal has decriminalized all drugs. And the outcomes are fantastic. The health outcomes are better. The crime outcomes are better. It's just, it's great. New Zealand has legalized all sex work. And the outcomes are really good. So yeah, there are, there are examples of this thing there, this thing there, and I talk about you know them all through the book.
0: Yeah, a lot of things that you say really align well with I mean, what I'm hearing from the local Black Lives Matter movement, and I wonder what are your thoughts on that. I mean, they're basically saying the same thing you're saying, with your title and what's in your book and what you said tonight.
2: Yeah. So, uh, so how how am I relating to the Black Lives Matter movement? How are they relating to me? So there's dialogue going on, I actually. Uh, had the contract to write this and the outline for it before Ferguson happened and before Eric Garner, before Black Lives Matter. So I've been, you know, I've been doing this work a long time and I put it aside for a couple of years to write essays and, and try to uh, be involved in the conversation in real time after Ferguson happened and then went back to the book. But uh, the Movement for Black Lives, BYP 100, all these groups are in the book There's a dialogue back and forth. And yeah, they they are putting out really important ideas, and i tried to reflect that in the book. And also, um, groups around the country are inviting me to come and talk and help amplify what they're doing. And so I I think it's been a good collaboration or something like that. Yeah. Cool. All right. Great questions. Thank you. Thank you, everybody.